0: Hey, what's up, guys? Coach Ryan here, Um, sitting outside at Good Neighbors Coffee House here in Colorado Springs, to bring you hopefully will be an enlightening set of answers to all the questions that have been rolling in the last week. Know I've been a little bit absent from the podcast scene for a while. I'll hopefully get this one up on YouTube, maybe throw it up on Facebook also. I had a lot of great questions come in. Most of them come through uh, Instagram. So I appreciate that guys. I'm going to try to touch on all of them and get as in-depth as I can. Um, as always, let me start this out with uh, thank you for your questions, thank you for your interest, and thank you for watching and following along. Um, it really lets me do what I love that you guys want some of my knowledge and expertise brought to you. So I'm just going to go ahead and dive right in today. Um, I had asked that we keep the questions centered around training whether it is uh, exercise selection, programming, um, training motivation, uh, just basic lifts, things like that. I will do another one of these down the road probably next week or so where we'll touch on nutrition a lot more in depth. Um, There were a few questions that came through nutrition-wise and that's cool. Um, Hit me up with those all the time. And the last thing I'll say before I jump into these questions is that uh, I did have a few on here that I'm not going to answer in this podcast. But I am going to make its own video on because I think they warrant a a little bit more in-depth. So a little bit of teaser to that. The question actually comes from my good buddy Vin back in New York. His question was, how do you help an athlete with a limited range of motion to do full range of motion lunges who currently cannot? And uh, that one warrants its own video because I'm going to have to demo a few things. So Vin, keep an eye out for that one. That one's going to come up real soon. All right, so let's jump into the very first official Q&A. Let me take a sip of my coffee here. should turn it this way for those of you in the video world to see the uh, Good Neighbor logo. I'm going to jump right in. Uh, My buddy Brian Dunn, formerly of Colorado, hopefully coming back to Colorado sometime soon. I was on his podcast in the past, shot me a few questions. Um, Really great ones, actually. We're going to start off with... He says, what are your favorite accessory movements for barbell lifts? Now, I'm going to preface this by saying that when we start out talking about barbell lifts and then uh, talk about accessories, we're probably talking about the big three and the major movements like uh, your squats, your presses, whether it's bench or overhead, your deadlifts, and your power cleans, All right, the things that are more bang for your buck. Um, we can do a whole nother episode on programming, and actually, I probably will, but I'll tell you that um, your training probably should start after a thorough warm up with one of those big, basic lifts, your barbell lifts. So, Brian wants to know what are my favorite accessory movements uh, to, to supplement those with? Now, I train a little bit differently than a lot of people. Um, I call myself a power lifter. I've competed in power and competed in strongman. But um, the way a typical power lifter would train is they would say, today's gonna to be a squat day. So I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna squat. And I'm gonna take, whether it's 20, 30, 40 minutes to hit, whatever it is they're gonna do for the day, whether it's a certain rep max, or they've got certain percentages and volume they're trying to hit. And that block of time for them is dedicated to that lift. For me, well, I do want to be as strong as possible uh, in the powerlifting scene, in the strongman scene, the cross suit, whatever, you know? I, I have a limited time in my life, so for me, my favorite accessories are movements that I can pair with the big lifts that don't take away from it at all. That I can sneak in between so that we over the course of the week when I'm saying I've got a squat session, a deadlift session, a bench session, or a press session, or a power clean session, I've got basically a, a handful of lifts right there. And then I got a whole bunch of other stuff that I want to see happen. Rather than spending a half an hour on my squat and then say I'm going to spend another half an hour on my strict press and another 10 to 15 minutes on a couple other accessories, what I'll do is I'll sneak things in. So I'm going to give you a real basic lift. Uh, Let's say it's a squat day. My favorite accessories during the lift are going to be things like pull-ups or ring rows. I love an upper body row coupled with especially a barbell back squat because... There are muscles that aren't taxed similarly. So while you're squatting, you're not using your upper back in the same way. And when you do a lift like a a strict pull-up in between, it reminds you to engage all of those muscles that you would use during the pull-up, which then help you during the back squat. So say my lift, uh, for example, the other night, I knew that I wanted to go to some heavy sets of three in the back squat. I ended up going three sets of three. So I tried to keep my volume different for the pull-ups. So I wasn't going to go like weighted pull-up sets at three. See what I'm saying? So if I was going heavy sets of three in the back squat, my pull-up then is going to be based around volume. They might be close to max effort sets. Truck going by. Not as many loud trucks out here in Colorado as there were in New York. Um, so I'm not necessarily going to go heavy sets of pull-ups in between, but I'm going to go with some some volume between so they might be close to max effort and I might just say like five to eight reps of a really controlled pull-up okay Um, let's go further into that squat session my best accessories for a given lift are that lift okay let me elaborate a little bit Uh, squat three by three accessory three by ten That's it, because I feel like the basics hammered over and over and over are really going to push you so much further ahead than if I were to spend an additional 20 minutes on like a rear foot elevated split squat or uh, a weighted lunge or things like that. It's not to say that those don't have a place, but we're talking about what are my favorite accessory movements, right? I understand that there's a lot of things in a program that should happen, but I have favorites also. I'm biased to the things I like to do. So my favorites are just more of the same. So I don't like to get a lot of volume at the top end because it makes me hurt. Uh, What I do like to do is I'll work up to a heavy set of five, a heavy set of three, or a three by three or a three by five, and I won't push it much more than that. I'm not going to go like 10 by three or any of these crazy volume sets at a very high percentage. Instead, I'll hit something heavy to let my body know that I have to adapt to those heavy weights, and I'll drop way down, and then I'm focused on volume. And when it comes to volume for me and those accessory sets for the squat per se, I'm not focused anymore on compensatory acceleration as much as I am time under tension. So now to make that squat an accessory at a lower weight, say like 225 for sets of 10, I'm focusing on what is my position on the way down, where are my contractions, and on the way up, am I squeezing the muscles that I know are lacking when it comes to squatting? I know that I have... Uh, my glutes and hamstrings my posterior is much better than my quad so that means when I squat I'm really gonna focus on staying more upright in those accessories and you can tweak it a little bit right so you can take a squat and you can vary the way you squat in so many different ways to make it an accessory to bring up weak spots you can do the same thing when it comes to bench I love taking my bench press go do a heavy set of five or set of three or whatever it is for the day and dropping down and doing sets of 10 or 12, but I might go close grip, I might pull in, right? Okay? I might take my feet up off the floor, okay? There's a, there's a principle of specificity that says if you want to get great at a given lift in a given way, you do it that way over and over and over again. Now with the bench, for example, I want to get great at benching and I'm pretty good at arching my back and kicking my feet back under. Um, it's just straight-up pressing power that I want to get better at. So what I do is I pick my feet up off the floor and uh, I don't arch my back. So my feet might touch the floor. See what I'm saying? So we got this like natural curvature where you're like arch back when you're hitting heavy bench presses and Instead of doing that what I'll do is I'll lie flat on the bench. So it's more of a bodybuilding style bench I'm just working on straight-up volume of pressing strings And again, I might go close grip so that way my shoulders don't get all angry at me at the same time when it comes to deadlift accessories I don't do a lot of volume with deadlift Um, you kill the deadlift the deadlift kills you I wish I could remember who said that uh, but it's a pretty sweet quote and uh, basically holds true for the fact that like not only your CNS but your posterior chain is just gonna get completely um, sizzled, smoked steamed whatever you want to call it Um, so instead uh, I'll just focus on the fact that I need posterior chain work and typically for me what gives out first in the deadlift Is not my legs, it's my upper back starts to round first. That's the very first thing. So I'll hit a heavy, heavy deadlift, and it won't be perfect up top. So I might do some weighted rows or some back extensions or just some bent rows, some pen rows, and that might be barbell or kettlebell, just to really focus on pulling those lats into the back pocket and making sure that I'm bringing up weak points there. And this is going to be different for everybody. Your weak points may not be mine. Maybe your back is strong as hell, and maybe you just need more hamstring work. So maybe some single leg RDLs or some, uh, some glute ham raises, and I'm talking like real glute ham raises, not back extensions on the GHD or the GHR. Um, not sit-ups on it. I'm talking like dig your knees into that pad your feet in there Keep a straight line from knee to hip to shoulder and then just let yourself come down and pull it back up I'll tell you, I got to band those to get any kind of volume. Those are tough tough exercises So uh Brian, I hope that helps my favorite accessory movements for barbell lifts um, otherwise, dude, I just hammer body weight dips pull-ups chin-ups uh, lunges of all variations and then I weight them also. So like Bulgarian split squats or rear foot elevated split squats I weight those with a kettlebell in either hand. I don't throw a barbell on the back for that. I got enough of that with squats um, Dips I try to weight those or I try to do them slow with tempo um, Chin-ups uh, a lot of times what I've been doing lately is I've just been picking some volume Whether it's like 50 or 70 or a hundred reps of a chin-up or a pull-up and I'll just say let me see how long it takes me to get to that number. And then every time I break off the bar, like last night I did this, every time I came off the bar on my way to 50 strict pull-ups, that'd take a heavy sled down back across the room. It was just my way of keeping my sets max effort and not getting into like the the singles, doubles, and triples when it got past like 30, 35 reps. Um, other than that, man, the basics. That's the whole thing about my whole tenant has just been the basics work over and over and over again. Um, you just keep them fresh by varying stances, varying width, and just variations of the same lift. Coffee break and move on to the next question. This this cup of coffee is not going to last the entire podcast, so I'll definitely be getting another one. Um, I, may, I may pause to go get another one, but not yet. We got more questions. I got one more that uh, came from Brian. He wants to know, what's the prescription for progressing loads with kettlebells? Now, this one's awesome. I really like this one because... There are so many layers to this question that I can get into. Um, we progress loads when we are either A, a competitive athlete, okay, where we want to know, am I hitting a certain number for a competition? Am I hitting a certain rep scheme for a competition? Where is my, my, my level of strength in relation to that? And we track those numbers for that reason, right? When it comes to progressing loads with kettlebells, now we, it gets a little funny here. Especially since your your jumps and kettlebells are typically like nine to eighteen pounds, if you've got some true kilos, and depending on the the size and range of the uh, kettlebells you have available to you. Now, the the reason it gets tricky here when you talk about uh, progressing loads with kettlebells is typically people who want to lift kettlebell for sport will already have those set weights, and then it becomes rep schemes rather than max effort lifts like one, three, and five uh, rep max lifts. So instead. The people that uh, uh, will lift kettlebell that aren't competitive will either look to their body weight in relation to the weight of the kettlebell. Can I swing a half body weight kettlebell? Are uh, my Turkish getups consistent at quarter body weight kettlebells, half body weight, third body weight? Can I swing a one body weight or three quarter weight body kettlebell if you have them available? So now we're getting into relative strength okay? Kettlebells are really good for that too. And the other thing about kettlebells, and I know I've got another kettlebell question later on, and I'm going to jump to it after this one, is that typically training with kettlebells, if you are kettlebell only, right, your goal is probably not maximal strength. It's probably fitness, general physical preparedness and fitness. So then that begs the question, does load matter as much in terms of the actual kilos or pounds or however much it weighs or does the stimulus matter okay and what I've found with people that I train with kettlebell is we can achieve the same stimulus okay, in progressively more difficult ways with the same kettlebell okay? so let's take the uh oh man let's take a lift like uh, a press for example so you can press you can strict press a kettlebell If I just said, hey man, rack that thing, press it overhead without use of your legs. And then they do it. Awesome. Once they get pretty good at that, then I'm going to say, all right, now we're going to tuck that rack closer and we're going to keep it tight. Right. And then that becomes more difficult with the same kettlebell. So now all of a sudden they're gonna and I know I'm using my hands and some of you guys are listening without audio here. So what I did was I said when somebody presses overhead anyway, anyhow, typically what they'll do, imagine your thumb starting near your collarbone, the first thing they'll do is they'll externally rotate where the thumb will come to the outside and they'll get this little bent action happening. So it actually goes overhead at a more uh uh, more beneficial angle for them to be strong so then what I say is once they've got the ability to press that I'll have them sit completely tall and upright and I'll say that kettlebell has to stay in line with uh, between the, the center of your body and your shoulders Right. so anybody in the your, your, your clavicle there mid clavicular we call that right the center of the clavicle and you have to stay vertical along that path so it means that they have to keep their elbow in and I make that lift more difficult once they can do that, then I start saying, hey, you know what we're going to do now? Now we're going to come tempo on the way down. So we're going to start eccentrically loading all of those presses to make it much, much more difficult. Or I might toss them into a lunge position. Or I might toss them into a, a seated position so that they have to Z-press it, right? And then once they've passed through all those progressively more difficult levels of pressing, I say, hey, you know what? Let's step it up in weight and let's come back to where we started with the first progression. So." It's a little bit different than with the barbell where you learn the lift and then you progressively add two and a half, five, ten, fifteen 5, 10, 15 pounds on or extra reps. Instead, it's how do I take that one movement and what am I trying to achieve, the stimulus, and then make that progressively more difficult until we've tapped out difficulty and they've got complete control of that weight and then they move up. And it's really because the jumps are so large that we do it now. Okay? So, uh, Brian, I hope I answered your questions on that one. I do have another kettlebell question or two. I'm gonna jump around a little bit. I should have kept my pen on me here so I keep track of that, but we're gonna move down the list a little bit. Um, And this kind of goes hand in hand. Uh, Buddy Roman Wright that I met this past year in South Carolina at Sorenex Summer Strong, and we've been in touch Pretty regularly, he uh, he sent in the question. He said, "Do you think kettlebells can completely replace a barbell in a program if done right?" Now, this has got a whole lot of backload behind it because I'm going to ask, "What is your goal? Why are you doing the program? Okay, and what is, is your intended training stimulus?" If you come to me and say, "I want to be competitive at CrossFit, powerlifting, strongman, or anything that involves maximum strength, football, sports, athletics," I don't think that a kettlebell can replace a barbell in that sense but if you come to me and you say hey man I just I don't really care to compete in anything but I want to be super capable in life I want to get stronger more agile I want to bulletproof my joints then yeah I do believe that a kettlebell can replace a barbell in that scenario right I am NOT dogmatic one way or the other because there's so much Uh, There's so many factors that go into your exercise selection and the type of training you do. If you came in and you told me that, hey, my joints hurt when I touch a barbell and I hate lifting anything, I'd say do bodyweight stuff all the time, right? But in the sense, if you say, I'm general physical preparedness, I don't care about competing in anything, I have no desire to test a one, three, five rep max, I don't even know what those are, uh, all I want to do is I just want to feel better because I mountain bike all the time or feel better because I'm 47 years old and uh, I got a grandkid on the way and I want to be able to play with them when I'm 67 years old, then I'll say, hey, you know what? Let's incorporate body weight and kettlebell, and we can do it really, really correctly. And that's not to say that we can't get really super strong doing kettlebell stuff. Um, Maverick's Fieldhouse, right? If you guys know who that is, uh, Maverick, man. He was uh, on my podcast a while back last summer, and a dude is phenomenally strong. Or I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but uh, Gorilla Gorivek. I, I follow the dude on Instagram. He's, I don't know, he's probably nine feet tall, presses 300-pound uh, kettlebells. Slight exaggeration, but the dude is super strong, and uh, he's all kettlebell and mace. right? So it's not to say you can't get maximally strong with kettlebells. It take, takes a long time, and it takes a lot of uh intention to make sure that we're focusing on what makes us strong, because the first things that will happen with kettlebells is your joints are going to get super, super stable, and that's awesome. And if all you're looking for is maximal strength, there are better ways to do it. If you're looking for athletic performance, kettlebells have a role, but I don't think they can replace the barbell in that sense. All right, Roman, I hope, I uh, hope that answers your question. I'm going to take a second and take a sip of coffee. I'm going to look back at my list and see if I had any other kettlebell questions uh, that I can attack right now while we're on the topic. Uh, I got one from Mike in New Jersey uh, benefits of kettlebell training and how it transfers to a barbell now uh, Mike I think we already touched on the benefits of kettlebell training we talked about joint stability uh, unilateral training in the sense that if I have both hands I want to implement whether it's pull up bar barbell whatever right um, there's a little bit of uh, compensation that happens with um, Say like you've got an imbalance from right to left, there's a compensation that happens when both hands are pushing on the same implement and that stronger arm or hand or leg or whatever might take over a little bit more and uh, never allow you to shore up any imbalances. So one of the main things about kettlebell training is that it shores up imbalances on a, a unilateral sense that each arm is solely responsible or each leg is solely responsible for the work being done. Um, there's also a huge aspect of athleticism that happens with kettlebells, in um, the fact that we need to be able to move and control our body through lots of varying planes of motion that we typically don't see in the uh, like several primal movement patterns that happen with the barbell, right? There's some some different uh, like angles that happen that we need to load. Take the Turkish getup for example. Your shoulder passes through so many different planes of motion during the getup that you probably never really touch. Uh, unless we're doing like some advanced level uh, snatch-based Olympic lifting movements like soft presses and things like that. Otherwise, our shoulder never really gets taxed in those ways. So kettlebell can help with that. And it kind of hits a lot of the in-between things, right? Instead of like vertical horizontal, you get some diagonal strength. And uh, controlling loads that are placed away from the body helps with balancing and proprioception too, right? Um, I think we've... uh, pretty much touched on just about all the kettlebell questions I have so I'm gonna jump back up the lift, list and uh, this one's got a little bit of kettlebell in there there's been a lot of kettlebell in my life lately so a lot of the questions have to do with that but this one uh, comes from Roman also he says uh, do you think that or Olympic lifts he's talking about the snatch and the clean and jerk and variants. do you think that Oly lifts and their kettlebell variants are best for building explosive power Um, I'm going to take that as a two-part question, like an either or, because I believe that there are some differences. So he wants to know, like if we want to be super explosive, uh, we're talking things like you could do plyometrics, jump training, things like that, and how do we make those better? What's the best way to be more explosive? Now let's start with kettlebells because I believe that the kettlebell clean, the kettlebell snatch and the kettlebell swing being the three most explosive, the kettlebell swing being the most explosive movements in the world of kettlebell, aren't necessarily the best way to develop explosive power. Because probably if we're talking about being maximally explosive, we're talking about sport transfer and athletics, and uh, the barbell really is gonna take the cake on that one. Because the issue and the thing that happens with kettlebells is, The kettlebell swing done correctly is is an extremely explosive movement with a, a super patient closing of the hip. So we're waiting for that kettlebell to come back to the hip before we close it, almost catch it in a very quick close and a fast open snap. The issue is it can be done incorrectly at heavy weights. And the fact that it can be done incorrectly at heavy weights means it is done incorrectly at heavy weights. So you see people swinging like... 32 kilogram or even like uppers of over hundred pound kettlebells. And they're really just, they've got this slow hinge close and the slow hinge open and it's moving. It's going where it's supposed to go. It's beginning and end range of motion, but they're not getting the explosive aspect out of it. But if you take a power clean, for example, bars coming from the ground or a hang power clean coming from above the knee, and it has to get to your shoulders, not shoulders coming down to it. So We're talking about power catching it up high and that weight goes up. It's not going to come up higher because you can overload the bar so much more with a, a barbell, overload the weight so much more with a barbell than you can a kettlebell, that you don't have the capability in your arms, no matter how jacked your arms are and how strong they are, to muscle 225 to your shoulders unless you've got the explosive capabilities in the hips. So I think Ole Lifts are the best for building explosive power. I think that kettlebells are great for displaying it, uh, and I think they're best for practicing it and showing you the need to If you've got a great coach watching you and saying, hey, that was explosiveness through the hips or that was not explosiveness through the hips, it's a great way to develop that proprioception and feel the difference because you can do both with the kettlebell. But I think as far as building it, it's really going to come from power variations of Olympic lifts because I've seen some people clean massive amounts of weight that I'm talking squat clean that are not that explosive. They're just really good at getting underneath the bar and they can stand it back up with that oscillation, that rebound, the bounce out of the squat. Uh, and then I've seen some people that are super explosive and those people are the ones that are power cleaning weight, right? They're they're taking it from the floor from the hang and it's coming up to meet them They're not coming down to meet that bar. So all that power is transferred into the bar, which is super incredible Watch somebody power clean over 300 pounds. That is an explosive MF right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna leave that one there Roman. and I hope that answered that question so we're just gonna We're gonna come right down the list. I got one last question for Roman. He threw me a bunch, I appreciate that, and he wants to know what my favorite post-workout meal is. Um Man, I could go into a whole lot with nutrition, so I'm just going to answer this one briefly because you you took the time to ask it. I appreciate it, but I'm going to save the super in-depth answer for when we get to uh, the nutrition episode, which will be next week. My favorite post-workout meal is whatever's available. I'll be honest with you. I'm not super dogmatic about my nutrition. After a decade plus of counting macros, uh, counting grams of protein, weighing, measuring, uh, trying intermittent fasting, keto, like... My favorite was high-fat, high-carb, high-protein. All right, let that sink in for a minute. Just eating everything in sight. That was when uh, my wife was pregnant with our daughter, and that's when I gained about 20 pounds in about six months. That was my favorite diet. But uh, my favorite post-workout meal is going to be whatever's available to me because after a decade of paying attention to nutrition, pretty much what we have around and available and is second nature for us to grab are gonna be things like, uh, like pre-cooked meat in the fridge, maybe, uh, we've got a ton of like different variants of like, so we've got some clean whey protein around, we've got some collagen protein around, uh, a ton of fruit, uh, so like a banana, something like that. I'll typically make my shakes with whole milk uh, because post-workout. Man, it's getting a little cold out here. Because uh, post-workout, usually uh, I'm not having access to a meal for a while after, because I try to work out at times a day when uh, it's like I'm already at the gym, or I'm gonna have to coach right after. So I'll train and then I'll slug a bunch of calories in the form of like whole milk and protein powder, maybe a banana for some quick carbs, and I will go about it. If I had a choice, uh, it would be come home, I train in the morning. My choice would be uh, four or five eggs, a bunch of ground beef. Uh, I've been having a problem with bacon lately unfortunately sucks but uh a bunch of ground beef a bunch of eggs um i throw some like sweet potatoes i like cutting them up i like throwing them in coconut oil to sear them a little uh, sea salt on top we make like chips i'm an adult i like chips for breakfast but uh those are those are some things that i really like for food but uh we'll we'll leave food there for now because i want to talk about that more next episode i'm gonna go right down the list Cole, Cole Moore from uh, down in the dirty south. I know Cole through a, a mutual friend back in New York, Will Bradley, the adventurous gentleman. So, uh, Cole came on and wrote some articles for Will about uh, uh, Cole. I'm going to try to remember the name of the article, man. It was uh, Where Have All the Cowboys Gone or Where have the Real Gentlemen Gone? Something along that line. It was about being a real man. It was, it was a really great article Cole wrote. And, uh, to check that out on the Adventurous Gentleman site. But uh, Cole has been really good about uh, staying on top of everything I've done, too, which is awesome, and I really appreciate that. And uh, him and I have something in common. Uh, we have a, uh, a Spartan Super coming up pretty soon. I signed up for one a while back. I'm going to do it here at Fort Carson in Colorado. The, uh, the Spartan Super, for those of you that don't know, is an eight-mile obstacle course race done here in the mountains. Obviously, we're at elevation, 7,000-plus feet, and... Uh, I think there's something like 25 to 30 obstacles thrown in there too, and so his question is because he comes from the world of strength and kettlebell and barbell, and he says, uh, "I have a Spartan Super coming up." He said, "Besides jogging, biking, jump rope, what else can I do?" Now he asks that with the uh, the preface that he's already strength training. Okay, so if any of you have a Spartan Super coming up or a an obstacle course race or want to kind of venture into that, Cole is asking that. He, he has added in a lot of endurance training because he's already doing strength training. So taking the thousand foot view, basically what you can do and what Spartans in obstacle course races like to challenge you on is your ability to be multifaceted, but with an endurance um, forte. Meaning that while it is an endurance race and you do need to be strong for it, you need to have muscular endurance, I think is going to be the biggest one, because there isn't really going to be a point in a Spartan where, uh, now correct me if I'm wrong, I haven't really done a long one like this, but uh, I'm familiar enough with it that there isn't going to be a point where you get that feeling like you do 13 to 15 miles into a road race, where it becomes aerobic capacity. A lot of it's going to be muscular endurance, to be honest with you. You're going to have short bouts of duration of running from one obstacle to another, possibly Waiting in line, especially if you're not in the elite heats, you're going to have to wait for people. So running from one to the next and then muscular endurance, especially with grip strength. So I think on top of typical strength training, so keeping your your base levels of relative and absolute strength up by doing things like, uh, I would say like three rep maxes, five rep maxes occasionally without a ton of volume on the barbell lifts. I would add in a lot of volume on things like bodyweight squats, lunges, or moderate to light loading. Things like um, kettlebell front racks, uh, double kettlebell goblet squats, sandbag squats, and just get used to having load in your arms or on your back or carry, and then doing things. right. So lots of push-ups. I would do weighted push-ups, so vested. So we're talking like 10 to 15, maybe 20 pounds for high volume. Um, I think that that's the best route to go. Maintain absolute strength through those one to three to five rep maxes and then work on muscular endurance through relative strength with bodyweight training At light to moderate loads and uh, I would keep up the runs here and there I don't think that doing anything over like three to five miles three three to five times a week tops Is really necessary especially for an eight-mile race where you're not going to run a leg of it for more than a mile I'd say that's even a lot but uh also, if you're trying to tackle all these other things at the same time, like you know, you're you're trying to build up aerobic capacity, you're trying to build up muscular endurance, you're trying to keep base levels of absolute strength. You don't want to overtrain it either. So I don't think you need to be running eight to 12 miles multiple times a week. I think that small three to five mile bouts, let's say three times a week, mixed in with one to two full body sessions of absolute barbell strength, and then lots of Hammer the push-ups, hammer the pull-ups. Grip strength is gonna be super imperative when it comes to Spartan racing. Okay, thanks Cole for that question. Cole has one more that I'm gonna answer but I'm gonna touch on, it's a nutrition question. He says, what's a good pre-workout meal? Uh, Proper fuel is important for performance, exclamation mark. 100%, I agree. Um, I'm just gonna touch on it briefly because like I said, the nutrition episode will be next week. But uh, we've already talked a little bit about post-workout meals, pre-workout meal. Honestly, it's going to be anything that you can digest and it's not going to come back up. Okay, right? You should probably eat within an hour to an hour and a half before, depending on what you're going to do. If you're going in for a strength training session, you should probably have some sort of uh, sustained energy carbohydrate type. And uh, personally, I like fruit. I think fruit's an awesome thing on the way into the gym. So that's usually like 10 to 15 minutes out of strength training, a banana, an apple, applesauce packet. sometimes during. I think that well before that, all the other meals should mimic each other, in that they should have about a portion of protein, which for anyone is about palm size. We talked about that. Should have a a relatively larger portion of carbohydrates, especially before training, and uh, since you're you're well before training, an hour to hour and a half out, make sure it's pretty complex. Things like rice, oats. Um, potatoes, things that are going to take a little bit longer to digest. Save the fast or simple sugars, things like uh, your fruits, your applesauces, things like that, for immediately before because they're going to they're going to they're going to break down and they're going to be available a lot faster to you. And we'll get more into depth in that question when we touch on the nutrition episode. So I'm going to take a little sip of coffee and take a look down the list and see what else we got. Okay, I think we're moving on to. Uh, cj is another one of uh, uh questions come through instagram he is a mutual friend of maverick from maverick's field house that's how i've seen him cj is huge into uh, a lot of kettlebell training a lot of mace training his first question is how much training is too much what do you recommend five days four days a week and i wish i had a really good answer for that but this is going to be such a uh it really depends on the person, uh, it depends on biological age, it depends on training age, it depends on type of training, it depends on goals, what else is going on in your life, what's your nutrition look like, what's your sleep look like. So frequency, I'll say as a general rule of thumb, I wouldn't go any less often than every other day. Okay, taking two to three days off in between might be a bit much because then we lose a bit of the adaptation. and. Uh, and we've really given ourselves a little bit too much time to to come away from the the stimulus that we're trying to give it. I'd say that too often, uh, you see, if you're spending as much time trying to recover from sessions by adding in things like... uh, you're seeing a chiropractor regularly. You're getting cupping done, massage therapy done. You're having to hit like cold showers, ice baths, cryotherapy, things like that. and You're covered in like KT tape and all that. Then you're probably training too much. It's the opposite. It. So if you your body cannot keep up of its own accord to your training, it's too much. So this really great quote I like. It's a super simple way to remember. Uh, how often to train and how much to do when you train. It's what is the minimal effective dose, meaning what, what is the smallest amount of work that I can do in the smallest amount to elicit the exact response I'm looking for for the day. Okay, so if you come in and you're like, man, I'm just going to do sit-ups till I, I puke or I'm just going to work out until I can't even move my legs, that is way beyond the minimal effective dose because now we've, we've, we've hit a stimulus so high that it's going to take so long to recover from that we're actually going to step backwards from the ability to climb these stairs, right, to uh, elicit a, a continuous response in a continuous Um, Adaptation to what we're looking to strive for so the minimal effective dose minimal effective dose would instead be how do I come in and uh, Elicit just enough response for the day to like, Hey, how does my body say I need to get stronger for these squats? Well, we hit something that's pretty heavy and then we back off and we allow it to recover. Okay, so for me personally uh, at this stage of my life with how busy I am I train whenever I can I'm usually As little as half hour as long as an hour 15 depending on what I have for time for the day But I'd say about five days a week is what I train and not all of them are go hard not all of them are go hard Uh, I'd say that too much training is to be anything you can't recover from on your own so if you're looking for a ton of outside help to recover you've probably hit it too hard if you feel like you're not seeing any improvements you're not hitting it hard enough Right? And if you're taking multiple days off in between, then I think that's far too much. Um, I think I just saw a snowflake. So if I suddenly have to cut out here and cut back in, it's because uh it started snowing enough to pick this back up somewhere else. I got a few more questions here. Uh, he also wants to know can you do bodyweight training every day and not overtrain? Um, again it depends on your definition of bodyweight training. Uh if you're hitting a bunch of just straight up push ups, pull ups, and things that your body is accustomed to every day, say like I'll wake up every morning and do 50 push-ups and 30 pull-ups on a in my bedroom, and then go about my day, and maybe do it again at lunch, again at dinner. Cool. That's probably pretty good. You could probably do that every day. Um, there's a fine line because you need to move every day, and essentially everything that you do to move is bodyweight training, right? It's uh, you're you're moving your body through full ranges of motion. Um, if there comes a point when it would be too much. I think that's if you were. Uh, hitting a body weight training to a point that's actually making you physically sore. Um, and, and you could achieve that by stressing the eccentric portion of the motion, which is the negative portion. So if you were doing a bunch of tempo push-ups or tempo dips for that matter, or uh, let's take pull-ups for example. So you're jumping yourself up over the bar, so your chin is up, you're holding tight, and you're going as slow as possible on the way down, accumulating three to five seconds per rep for tens, uh, 20, 30, 40, 50 reps, that's a lot of time under tension and tear on the muscle. And that, I think, could lead to something that you might not want to do every day. So I hope that kind of answers it, it really depends on the type of body weight training. If you're looking to uh, gain maximum strength or size, I think that you need that kind of training and it should be spaced out or body part specific or push, pull, squat, hinge specific. Um, if it's just a matter of keeping up on relative strength, which is uh, your strength in relation to your body weight, then I think that doing a multitude of uh, lightweight, which would mean if you're, you're good at doing push-ups and you're good at like 20 to 25 plus per set, you could do push-ups every day in sets of 20 to 25 multiple times a day. And uh, just pay attention to your joints and make sure that they're not giving you issues like your elbows and wrists after a while. But otherwise, yeah, I think bodyweight training is something that we can all hit a little more often. Good question. And uh, last question from him. He wants to know, how often do you stretch or incorporate yoga into your training? Um, Yoga, not as much because um, I hate to say it, but I have a really hard time buying into it. And... uh, It's mostly because I'm not good at it and I know that anybody who's ever practiced yoga or does yoga I guess I guess practice is the right word practices yoga regularly will tell you that it's not about being good or bad it's about your own practice and your own breathing Um, the issues I have with yoga is for me personally is there are two things that I feel like it would uh, uh, I'd want to achieve from doing yoga and practicing yoga the first would be flexibility mobility which I'm not a fan of continuously passing through different positions to achieve that. For me, I would much rather just hold said positions and static stretch, which I guess that's, uh, they call that yin yin yoga, and uh, rather than like a vinyasa flow. um, Only because I've got a lot of issues in the hips, like anybody who does heavy training regularly will have, and uh, I find that holding positions for a little bit longer for each, feels much better for me and uh, we could call it yoga that's fine um, the other side of yoga is the mental aspect that people get from it and uh, whether that's uh, a meditative aspect and I've done a little bit with breathing practice with uh, uh, kundalini yoga uh, mostly back in New York and uh, I really enjoyed it but do I feel like I need to go to a yoga studio or call it or follow a set pattern of kundalini yoga to make that happen I don't I think that for a lot of people, it's just a matter of going like this <sighs> multiple times a day, I think helps a lot for me too. Uh, if yoga is your thing, do it, man. The world needs people to look up to like you that are really good at a practice and a discipline as old as yoga. When they say it's like two to four, I think it's like 4,000 years old or something ridiculous like that. Like people were doing like breathing practices as early as 2000 BC, recorded, and calling it yoga practices. And I think the movement itself started to come in much, much later than that, like around the turn of, I don't know, the turn of what? Like turn of, uh, from from BC to AD, right? Year zero is where it started to like incorporate, I don't know, don't quote me on any of that. I don't know, I don't know anything about yoga really, but uh, I just repeat things I hear, but so I do yoga once in a while because there's a, there's a place here in town called Hot Asana Yoga and uh, it's hot and they turn the temperature up and it feels really good on my joints to sit in a really hot room and stretch for a while and know that I can check out for that hour, hour and a half, so that's pretty cool. Now as far as stretching, on the other side of that, I do that very, very often. Um, I stretch every single day before and after sessions um, for maybe like three to five minutes at a time. So if I accumulate five minutes of stretching a day, over the course of the week, that's great. Um, I'll sit on the floor with my daughter when she plays and I'll stretch. I try to sit into a deep squat sometimes and sit there and that's stretching and holding loaded positions uh, while we play. And uh, I practice a lot of animal flow for my warm-ups, and uh, I think that's great for my wrist mobility. It shows me things that I need to work on that might become issues down the road, like how do my wrists feel as they bend back? How do my shoulders feel through a full range of motion? And I think that working those things definitely keeps me a little bit more uh, bulletproofed and aware of my body. So yeah, uh, stretching is definitely a huge, huge part of my training and uh, my lifestyle, uh, mostly because I want to stay uh, uh, this, this side of being injured. That's all. Um, I'm going to hit one more question here, and I'm going to save the rest for the next because we're going to try to keep this uh, far less than an hour. Coming up on 45 minutes here. Um, Nelson, I got a question from Nelson. I met Nelson in New Jersey at uh, Zach Evanesh's Underground Strength Coach Certification. I think it was about a year and a half to two years ago now, and I uh, followed him on Instagram. We've kind of shot some questions back and forth. Uh, good guy, his strength is coming up really well. Cool guy. His question was, and uh, this is gonna be the last one I'm gonna answer. He's got two, but uh, the last one is a very big question. I wanna, I wanna have my uh, its own episode to start talking about that. So the first question he says is, when training youth athletes, do you use any indicator lifts before moving them to main barbell lifts? So he wants to know if I take a an untrained kid, right, 12 to 15 to 17, a lot of times they'll come in. How do I train them before I start putting a bar on their back or in their hands? Now, uh, the whole point of having a bar on their back or in their hands uh, is to overload a movement pattern, right? So I still have to look to what's the end goal for training this this youth, this kid. And they say, hey, I want to play football, lacrosse, whatever. I just need something to do to, uh, to get better and I need to move. I need to get stronger. So I say, well, they should probably be able to squat. So obviously, first we start with movement patterns of the squat and typically day one three or five i'll get something to load that squat and it's usually a medicine ball up in front right and those of you who obviously can't see what i'm doing i'm holding it by the chest and pulling it close because front loading with a medicine ball of only 10 to 20 maybe 30 pounds at most depending on the size of the kid is enough of a uh, putting the load in front of them to help them feel a great position where a lot of times it helps them sit back into the heels and get a much better squat position with a front-loaded squat than a back-loaded squat. So I usually start there and I'll kind of assess their squat as they go. And uh, when they get to being able to hit a phenomenal position, and it varies with kids, sometimes by the end of month one, I can get a bar on their back. Sometimes it takes a couple years, especially with the young kids. 11, 12 years old, they might be doing uh, medicine ball squats, They might move on to uh, um, two dumbbells racked on their shoulders, squats, because it starts to move that load a little more over the shoulder and towards the back. And a lot of times I take kids right from that to barbell box squats. Right? I like to back load the squat with a box squat, because it teaches them how to sit back onto it and how to load the posterior and load the hamstrings. Because all too often, especially with the front loaded squat, people drop straight down into it. And then their knees track way over their toes, way forward, And uh, worst case scenario, it could develop knee injuries, but uh, from a training perspective, it just doesn't load their hamstrings enough, and it's not a posterior lift anymore, so it's not having as much transferability to explosive power, jumping, and sport. So when I teach them the barbell back squat, I start with a box squat at parallel to teach them how to sit back and keep a vertical shin, and I sit right there in front of them, my hand in front of their knee when they're tall, and I say, when you squat down, do not hit my hand with your knee. And then it forces them to sit back and I make sure their eyes stay down too. Um, Things like the deadlift. Uh, I teach a kettlebell deadlift first and I teach lots of farmer's carries. Uh, They got to be able to pick something up, carry it across the room, show me you can do that with a flat back. Then we move on to trap bar deadlifts because it's loaded similarly on the side. And then down the road, we move on to front loaded or conventional deadlifts with a barbell. But I'll typically do that with a bench behind them so that way... uh, they can feel the back of their shins touching a bench, and they can't lose that when they come down to the floor. So I go from the top down. So imagine standing nice and tall with uh, the back of your shins touching the edge of a bench, and you are got a barbell in your hands, and I teach them from the way down, so that way as they come down to the floor, the back of their shin cannot lose contact with that bench, and that forces them to have a vertical shin in the deadlift as well. And uh, it kind of helps them figure out their loads and staying back in the heels also. So uh, that was a great question. Um, let's let's uh, talk a little bit about upper body as far as training youth. Also, I think that the first thing uh, is push-ups. Can we do push-ups with a uh, midline stability? Right, push-ups are a moving plank, and for kids, the first thing that gives out is their midline, hips sag down, and then hips and bellies are the first thing to touch the floor. So what I do is I elevate the hands and I teach them plank positions. And we do a ton of planking. We do a ton of midline to strengthen that, that midsection to be able to, to hold that hollow body position as they push up. And then I elevate their hands to a bench to take some of the stress off so it doesn't change that position, it just changes the load. And then once they can do pushups there, we move them to the floor simultaneously, I do some upper body work such as floor presses. So while I want them to have a great core stability or a core stable position to do those push-ups, I also want them to develop upper body strength at the same time independently of that. So I do a lot of floor presses with them because it decreases the range of motion to the point where they're probably not going to hurt their shoulders, right? Because they're not doing this big wide bench press. Um, And by using dumbbells, their uh, falling off point, meaning like, hey, if they get to the point where they're not going to do another rep, it's just elbows touch the floor and they just hammer them down to the floor. It's not as, it's just far, far safer than a bench press. And it teaches them stability. And it's got that unilateral effect of they've got a separate dumbbell in each hand. Pulling, we do a ton of ring rows. Um, I do some like self-spotted pull-ups and chin-ups with them, where I might put a box. So they're standing on a box. So they're, uh, uh, like belly level might be up near the bar and then they bend their knees and they go on their tiptoes on that box and they support the pull-up with, they self-spot with their toes just to kind of teach them that range of motion too. And then I turn them into some negatives. And then once they can do body weight pull-ups, I typically for kids don't move on to weighted pull-ups. I typically let them just do max effort pull-ups, um, uh, until they're like 16, 17 years old. And then I started like letting them start weight pull-ups because, uh, I mean, if you get a kid that's like 14, that's banging out like 20 pull-ups in a row, that's pretty impressive, but typically not gonna happen. Typically a max effort set of pull-ups for a kid that's even really good at them, a young male's 14, 15 years old, is gonna be like eight to 10 if they're really good. And I think eight to 10 is a good training stimulus. There's no need to wait to that and make them come down even lower, right? Hopefully that helps. Um, I'm gonna leave that there. I'm gonna wrap up the Q&A right here for a couple of reasons uh first because uh we're at 48 going on 49 minutes which is the only place you can go from 48 is to 49 and uh it's getting a little cold out clouds have rolled in over the mountains and uh, i think snow is on the horizon which uh, happens here in colorado occasionally and uh also because i got a few questions left but um, that one that I started today's podcast with uh, from Vin, he wants to know how do you help athletes with limited range of motion to do full range of motion lunges they currently cannot. I'm going to make that his own video because I have to demo a lot of things for that. But I'll just prelude it and tell you that training stimulus, what are we focused on? We're focused on unilateral leg work in, uh, in a lunge position and we can achieve that kind of with step ups also for that population. So it's probably gonna go that route, and I got a little bit more to talk about it, but Vin, hopefully that helps initially. Uh, I would definitely scale them to a step-up variation, step-down variation, even in a low box, to start working on the unilateral leg control. Um, The other question I'm gonna save for later is also from Nelson. He wanted to know, if I had to choose five training principles to live by, what would they be and why? That's gonna be a big question. So I'm actually, Nelson, gonna go ahead and develop a list of training principles and narrow them down so that way I can touch on each one and I'll go in depth with that. And that might be its own article, its own video. Hey guys, uh, my coffee's cold, I'm cold. I'm gonna head in and get another cup at the bathroom before I go hang out with my family for the rest of the, the Saturday um this will be hitting your airwaves by saturday evening sunday morning please comment let me know what you think shoot me any more questions you have i love doing this i love chatting about these things if i touch on any topics in here that you want to know more about or have an opposing viewpoint or just want to chat about and agree with me cool do it shoot me a message we can chat Um, otherwise thanks for checking into the things that i do and say please be sure to subscribe to the uh, bare bones radio podcast. It's coming back alive. I'm putting more episodes out, getting more content. Occasionally throwing some interviews in there for you too. So please subscribe. Please share. I'm on iTunes. I'm on SoundCloud. Um, I try to put all these on YouTube also. If you have an account on YouTube, which you probably do if you've got a Gmail, um, please subscribe to my channel. Man, YouTube is so hard to grow. Um, I'm just putting that out there. I got like 20. 20 something people maybe on YouTube and uh, I will do more on YouTube if I get more people coming on too. So I'll keep making videos, keep putting them on. You tell everybody I'm on YouTube. Please subscribe and I will help each other out. Otherwise guys, uh, keep perspective, train hard, eat well, and put a smile on your face too. Love you.